Oh, it's a treat for me today to be able to introduce you to some friends of mine. Whether they want me to or not, I'm going to. It's relevant to where we're going as a, as a message this morning, too. The Kanjan family is here. Mike, Catherine, uh, uh, Kevin, and Sarah. Kevin and Sarah are the son and the daughter. Uh, Mike and Catherine are, uh, really, it's hard to believe, 20 years and plus we've been friends with them. Mike was the pastor of the church where I was first called into ministry as a youth minister. And uh, largely through his influence, he would say it was the Holy Spirit and give all the glory to God and all that. But if you actually like me as your pastor, then you may want to say thanks on your way out the door because he played a significant role in that happening. If not, punch him on your way out the door and tell him why. What were you thinking? Um, I went into youth ministry. I loved being a youth minister. I really did. It fit me really well. Um, I was immature and full of juice, and so hanging out with kids really came naturally to me. Um, after Mike left to go to Miami, um, another pastor took over, and I continued working in there. And then I started hearing about how I was very underdressed for the office. Now, you got to understand, when you're running around with middle school and high school kids, you're not dressed like you're in a professional office space. So it was always sort of a conflict to me that there was an expectation then that I wouldn't dress like a kid. Because most of the time, that's kind of sort of what I had to do, was dress, you know, when in Rome, do like the Romans. And so I dressed like that. When I went and left that church to plant Centerpoint Church in Tallahassee, it it dawned on me that I was going to have to have a change and it was going to be in my wardrobe. But I'm not really good at that kind of thing. So we had this young woman in our church who I trusted. She came to Christ in our youth ministry. Uh, She went on to go to college and help to start uh, Centerpoint Church. Um, She ended up as a manager at Abercrombie and Fitch and then was a Starbucks regional manager. really top-notch person and she loved Jesus and she loved me as a friend. And so I was able to go to her and say, listen, I, I need some help. Um, I want you to help me pick out a wardrobe that will make me look cool, but not like an old guy trying too hard. And because I really didn't want to do that. And, and with my wife and daughter, it's just different. I, I, for whatever reason, when you're close to family and they're, like, and they're picking at your clothes and stuff, it's just painful. So we were able to find this outside consultant And she helped me transition this whole area. And I felt great about it until I went to church the next week and multiple people came up to me and said, oh, you look good. Now, you can hear that two ways. (laughs) One is, wow, your present attire is really pleasing to the eye. Or, wow, compared to how you used to dress, you're really looking good. And, of course, as insecure as I am, I heard it the other way, the wrong way. I was like, oh, thanks. What do you mean? Was I just like a slob before? And so I was really pathetic and sad in front of people. And, and <clears throat> uh, the transition was one of wardrobe. Today we continue in our membership series, We Are the Body. Uh, beginning next month, we'll send out information about what you'll need to, be, what you'll need to do to be part of our initial membership class in April. Uh, part of that will be listening to these nine sermons in lieu of the membership class that we'll start offering uh, next fall and spring every year. Today's message is from the middle part of those three uh, collections, uh, and these three have been under the heading Gospel Guidance Membership to Each Other. Specifically today, we're going to talk about the corporate call of any church to collectively pursue obedience to the commands of Scripture and begin to reflect the character and attributes of our Savior, Jesus. Today's passage in Colossians uses the metaphor of taking off certain garments, throwing them away, and then putting on new ones. 
you may have heard the term sanctification thrown around in church circles. That's the term often really super Christians will use to describe their walk with God and becoming more like Jesus. But I want to take time to explain the word sanctified as it's used in Scripture. It, it simply means that someone or something is set apart for use. And in this particular case, God wants to set us apart by our conduct, our speech, our attitudes, so that we are the means by which others see his glory. Now, to put that in more practical terms for our church, we, one of the reasons we named our church Prism Church is because of the nature of a prism. It is really inanimate. It has no ability to shine forth any glory. It is, it, it's, set, it's set put. If a prism was a triangle, it, it would look like a piece of glass, and it really doesn't do much until light gets shined through it. And then the glory of the colors of the spectrum become visible for all to see. And really, that's what our church hopes to be, is that Jesus would shine through us, people would see his glory. And individually, this is what we're after as well, that we would be people who are used by God, that they would see Christ. Now, if you've been in a church or you have any religious background at all, you've heard reference to the fact that we are called to imitate Christ or to honor him or to please God with our behavior. And sometimes people will say, well, that doesn't seem very natural to me. And it isn't, but it's not uncommon. And I'd like to give you at least one example of how all of us have the capacity to actually make change when we need to. For instance, most of us, and I would say most, have determined not to use certain racial slurs. In culture, that's discouraged, obviously. We don't make these things because we don't want to offend people. We don't want to offend friends. We don't want to offend family. Now, it should cause us to look deep in our heart and wonder where all that hatred or ugliness comes from, but most people have decided for any number of reasons that they can curb their speech for the purpose of honoring others. See, it's about relationship. And as we said last week, and we'll continue to declare, the compulsion to make sacrificial change in one's life only happens because of the relationships that are important to them. Our propensity to say insensitive things is proportional to the number of relationships we'd sacrifice in order to exercise our right of free speech. The same is true of our relationship with God. If it isn't life-giving, if it isn't real to you, if it isn't providing a cornerstone for your existence, if it, if it isn't your all and your being, I'm confident that Scripture teaches that you will never get to a place where you will want to love him enough to change, to please him, to be used, set apart by him that people would see Jesus in you. To put it another way, we'll never desire to love God and obey him unless we've been transformed by his grace. Unless that's real to you, it's never going to happen. And we'll see in just a second where that is again presumed twice in this passage as we talked about last week in Philippians 2. It's presumed he's addressing believers so with that all laid out, I'd like to say that in today's section of Scripture, I want to talk about two things, two directives related to how we are supposed to honor Christ with our lives, both corporately and individually. And the first of these two thoughts is this. We're called to get rid of the old wardrobe of our earthly nature. 
Now, the, the image that's working here is you going to your closet and picking out the stuff that doesn't seem to be working for you anymore. Went out of style a long time ago. It happens pretty, pretty regularly for some. You collect it up and you throw it away. All right? This is the image that the apostle is using. That, this is a, that wardrobe for us is a metaphor for character, for action, for obedience to Scripture. This is what the verses 5 through 8 of Colossians 3 say. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you two once walked when you were living in them but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. It's important for me to point out that he is writing to Christians, and it is therefore pretty clear that you can be a believer and still stuck in some patterns of living that are unhealthy for you and displeasing to God. I actually went to seminary with a guy that said, once you became a Christian, you never sinned. And he literally sat there and claimed that for years he hadn't sinned. And I'd asked him if he'd heard of the sin of pride before, and he, <laughs> he didn't think that was that funny. And so, you know, but it was really strange to me that he actually delusionally believed he hadn't screwed up in like three or four years. It is evident just from the text itself that he is dealing with believers and he's telling them, we used to do that, we don't any longer. So if you're somebody who's still wrestling with these things, you're in really good company. That would be everybody who's a believer. So right away, you can put your guard down and stop thinking, oh gosh, I'm the only one. You're not the only one. You're amongst friends. Now, Paul is saying something here. You've heard the old adage if you've been at our church before, perhaps not if you've never heard this, and that is when, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you have to ask, what's it there for? And usually there are verses that precede it that will frame that discussion. And Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What precedes our section of verses today is a declaration of presumption. On the heels of last week's message, we're reminded again that we will only trust Jesus if we find our life in him. So I read to you Colossians 3, 3, and 4. These are the two verses that precede our section today. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Sound familiar? It's because you sang it this morning in the song, Before the Throne. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. You see, we can't find life in ourself. We're dead. We try to. We try to make our life capable of filling our soul. We come up with our own strategies and they don't work. Some of them are blatantly disobedient to patterns and commands given in Scripture. Some of them are just self-dependence, a recognition that we think we could do it ourselves and we don't have that capacity. We have died. Our life is hidden with Christ one way this gets expressed is to say our faith can't be a surface Christianity where in your mind or mine, Jesus plays just a part of our life. Our love for God and, our, and a desire to obey him will only result when we find all of our being in him. Finding life in ourselves is impossible. 
And last week we learned that we're to imitate Christ in his humility. This week we're told to imitate him in his rejection of sin. In other words, in his rejection of things that really can't provide life in the first place and our disobedience to God. We are commanded to resist temptation to sin against God the same way Jesus resisted all temptation. This should be a point of real encouragement for you because Jesus' experience has made him not puffy about how holy he is and how unholy you are. He knew that before he ever was incarnated into earth. All right, so what it did was it it increased or glorified this component of his, his majesty, which says he's sympathetic towards others. I read from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. This is the word. It says, we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This is important to know that when Jesus sees us struggling, he's not angry. He empathizes with his children. He was the incarnate son of God, holy by nature, and yet it was tempting. So he knows that we are dirt. I mean, we are clay. And so his disposition towards you and I as we struggle is not, you have let me down. It's, wow, I sympathize with you, which is why the verses that follow this Hebrews 4.15 verse say, we then can have confidence to come into his throne room with, with boldness to find mercy and grace in our time of need. Jesus himself experienced this temptation. He communicated in Matthew 4. He it actually told his disciples this story, and it got relayed to us in Matthew 4, that he was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And for our purposes, this gospel account of Matthew's gives us an indication of, that Jesus was uh, indi- uh, Jesus knew, Jesus believed, Jesus preached and taught his disciples that the devil was real. As well, one of the things we see in this account is that Jesus' words were a reflection of his confidence in the Old Testament as inspired by God. If you read this passage in, in Matthew 4, you see Jesus combating Satan by quoting truth back to Satan. So Jesus thought Satan was real, communicated that to the apostles and the disciples who wrote these things down for us to actually know today. And as well, Jesus quoted the Old Testament as if it was actually living and active and powerful and had in and of itself the the power to accomplish that which is it's designed to do, or it is efficacious, as theologians would say. His confidence in Scripture has bearing on us. See, because... All of what Paul is telling us to do in Colossians 3 is presuming that we respect his apostolic authority enough to treat what is being commanded to us as if it is the very words of God. The apostles are the ones that communicated to us what existed in Matthew 4, what Jesus' thoughts on the subject of who Satan was and how you combat temptation. These same apostles are the ones who wrote letters like Colossians chapter 3 to churches to give to us the prophetic word that we submit to. And this is one of the things that's critical for people who would want to join Prism Church to know. We see Scripture as the final authority, the inspired, infallible, and errant word of God. It is the final authority on all things of faith and practice in our church. Now, we are told in this infallible word of God in this inspired word of God 
to take the wardrobe in, our, in the closet of our lives and clean out the things that look bad. And we've been told to trust God that his motive for calling us to do this, to pursue holiness, is for his glory and ultimately for our good. We just have to be humble enough to know that God knows best. And here's the list of the things that we're called to, to throw away. Now, I know it was perhaps not like this in your house. Who knows? Uh, my mom would say, hey, pick the stuff out of your closet. We're going to donate this to Goodwill. You heard of Goodwill? We have one here in Pasadena. Everybody would bring their stuff to Goodwill. I'd like to reframe this for our purposes. I would like us to take all of this stuff, and we're going to send these to, to Badwill. All right, so these are the things that we're called to do. All right, we're called to take sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying, and we're called to take all of that and give it to bad will because if we don't, it creates ill will amongst the people in our lives. This is something else that the last thing that gets talked about that we're supposed to toss out is this subject of lying, and it's important. Uh, Colossians 3, 9, and 10, the verses that follow what we just read say this, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I found it sort of interesting that there's a listing of all the things that we're supposed to take off and throw away. And then he gets done with the list and he goes, and in addition to all that, since you've done this, don't lie to each other. So it was almost like lying had its own category all of its own. It's a poignant way to end the list because lying is how we attempt to falsely find life. We listen to the devil's lies that Jesus rejected. We lie to ourselves about how bad we really are so that we can kind of feel justified in our own goodness, which was what makes us self-righteous and it makes us impatient with others because we just think we're better. And so that's really lying to ourselves. We believe the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves and delude ourselves in continuing into destructive patterns. And all of it is just us deceiving and lying to others and ourselves to not because we're afraid to face a reality. We've proverbially seen the mirror of God's word. We've looked into it, and it doesn't look good. And instead of saying, okay, I've got to change my wardrobe, we go, something's wrong with a mirror. And there's nothing wrong with the mirror. Grace, the gospel, is what enables us to look into that mirror without fear. Have you ever watched the show, What Not to Wear? My daughter and wife have gotten me into this TLC show, believe it or not. I, I know some of you in my men's group now are thinking, oh, Chuck, so disappointed to hear that. Don't know if you know how this show works, too. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, So-called friends will send in to these two celebrities in their TV show uh, uh, the name of a friend or a family member who they think dresses like a slob or has funky makeup or is just strange but actually down deep inside a really beautiful person. So then what not to wear comes out and then secretly tapes these people as they walk around dressed like weirdos and and then they surprise them surprise and it's like oh my gosh what are you doing here and then they put them on the spot and tell them listen your friends have told us you dress like a slob welcome to our show we're gonna help you out 
And then they offer them money, and they say, listen, you come in, we'll give you $5,000. We have to let you buy the stuff, but we're going to tell you how to shop. But the trade-off is this. If we give you this money, you have to take all of your wardrobe, and you have to throw it out. And they do it with such glee, too. I mean, they're completely condescending to the person. They're having so much fun making them feel funny about the way they dress. And, and the whole thing for me is really uncomfortable, obviously. And so I'm like, gosh, if anybody ever did that to me, I would kill them. I would not I'd be like, a, I would not joyfully go, oh, I'm on TV. I'd be like, take that camera and put it away. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't really want anybody to see me. I certainly wouldn't want to be lifted up as the before picture. That's not, any, that's not fun in anybody's world. I can tell you that much. So they continue this process. They sit down with them. They watch them shop. Then they come back. And I have to say, never in the history of this show has anybody who was told, you're on what not to wear, do they go immediately and go, you're right. I see it immediately. I'm poorly dressed. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have any, pro- I, I don't have any problem with your advice. Please, more. It's a battle from the beginning. It's like, I think I look fine in that. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I know spandex isn't good for somebody that's 400 pounds, but it feels right to me, you know, and, you're, and you're, they're arguing with these professionals, and it's sad, and you go, just lay it down. These people know more than you, but I think about the friends who would, like, make you go through this and how bitter I would be towards them for, you know, the, the pain that I was feeling. You see, they're doing this, and they fight until the end, and that's when they do the reveal. That's when friends and family arrive someplace and this person whose hair has been cut and makeup altered and dress renewed to be more appropriate for who they are and what they do, they walk into a room and the people applaud. Oftentimes the person whose life has been changed, they'll cry and they'll go, I didn't know I could be this beautiful and it's really sweet. They have had occasions where somebody says, you know what, I don't care what all you think. I want to go back to dressing like the Wiccan witch and wearing black makeup on my eyes. That actually did happen. It happens. But the only thing standing between a person on that show and a new wardrobe and a whole new outlook on life is their pride. And this is the same for you and me. Uh, The only thing standing between you and I And real character change is humility. It's the ability to say, I recognize that the way I'm living, the way I'm thinking, the way I'm feeling is is improper. It's disobedient to God. It's displeasing to him, I'm sure. It's certainly not making others look at me and go, wow, that looks and reminds me of Jesus. See, if we keep pushing back against that, we're denying something really beautiful that God wants to do in our lives. He has called us to get rid of the old wardrobe of our earthly nature, but here's the good news, and that is that he has called us to put on the new wardrobe that's given to us in Christ. And it's important to recognize who we are in Christ before we actually start talking about the wardrobe. So let's read from verses 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Do you hear again the presumption of a vibrant faith, of somebody who's not just talking about Christianity, but is actually talking with Jesus 
and walking with Jesus. The apostle is presuming that we recognize and know that we are God's chosen and beloved. Do you see yourself as that? Do you get the gospel that God has forgiven you and that you are not just, okay, I'll let you in, that he actually really takes great pride in you as a father takes pride in his children? Do you get that? Because if you don't, you're not going to say, wow, I really want to love this person. If your conception of God is that he's angry and unsympathetic, it's very difficult to do anything but resent that. If you get the gospel where you see that he has forgiven you, that he's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love, if you genuinely believe that when he looks on you as his daughter or his son, that he takes great pride in you, then what happens is the dynamic of the relationship gets changed. There's a really interesting word that is wedged, as you'll see, between chosen ones and beloved, and it's holy. I think this is an interesting characterization of me as a child of God, that I'm his chosen one I get, that I'm his beloved one I'm trying to get, that I'm his holy one is one that if I don't think about it for a while, I'll go, I know that's not right. Perhaps you're with me and you're going, how can I get characterized as his holy one? Well, we are called holy as if we've already been made holy, which if you know the gospel, you know you have been. Christ sacrificed his life on the cross, rose from the dead, and credited us with his righteousness as, as his gift of grace to you and me. We have been in the sight of God made holy even as we are pursuing growing in likeness. It is in Hebrews again, chapter 10, verses 14 through 18, where the writer of Hebrews says this, for by one sacrifice, speaking of Jesus, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So you have been already through Christ's work, been made perfect forever, which is why the apostle in Colossians 3 can call you chosen and holy. The Holy Spirit also testified about this according to the writer of Hebrews. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after this time, says the Lord. I will put their laws in my heart and listen to this good news. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Your sins, if you are a child of God, have been completely forgiven. Front to back, beginning of your life to the end of your life, stuff you haven't done yet has already been cleansed and paid for. We pursue holiness because that's true. I know growing up as a Roman Catholic, I I had a really difficult time understanding how I was supposed to be motivated to be obedient if I was going to rest securely in the fact that I was already forgiven for stuff I didn't do. As a kid who was kind of bent towards getting away with as much as I could, uh, that seemed like a really big loophole. But what we're told in Scripture is the person who's genuinely encountered relationship with Jesus, now all of a sudden in that dynamic of fellowship and relationship is saying, I I want to please him. I'm doing it really badly, but I really desire to make him pleased with how I live. I really desire for him to be seen in my actions. Now, this is also something that comes out of our text today, and that is that Jesus assumed us and our sin, our soul, onto himself on the cross. 
Theologians refer to this as double imputation. The word impute means simply to take on or credit to something or someone. What happens is is on the cross, Jesus' holiness gets imputed to us, and the double part of that imputation is that our sin gets imputed to him. And in this beautiful exchange orchestrated by the God of heaven, the the children of God, anyone who would ever believe and trust in Christ for salvation has, before they were ever born, seen the righteousness of Christ, the chosen of God, given holy, holiness to their account. Christ did this to take our place that we might know the love of God. And since Jesus assumed us and our sins onto himself on the cross and carried them into the depths and then resurrected into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, our lives quite literally right now are hidden with him in Christ is what we're told in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3 again. If then you have been raised with Christ, Paul says, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is your new life. D.A. Carson, a great theologian, says, Their new life, speaking of believers in Christ, is not visible to others and in some measure is hidden from themselves. It will be fully evident only when Christ, who is that life, appears at his second coming. See, for us to not seek to put on the wardrobe of our Savior is to, in effect, deny that our life is truly found in him. Which is why a person who claims to follow Christ, but over the long haul of their life, never seems to see a proverbial character wardrobe change brought by movement of the gospel in their lives, they may actually have fooled themselves into thinking that they are a Christian. It is possible that somebody over the long stretch of their life could not really care, just like the cultural badge that came with that or the cultural gift that came with that, which is disappearing in certain parts of the country. I think if you live in Alabama, it still counts to your social account if you claim to be a Christian, but most places it's not. If that's you, you have to understand God is calling you to relationship and transformation. It happens by virtue of your interaction with him. And if you wonder whether or not God really is at work in your heart because perhaps it seems like a long time since you've seen him work change in you, I would encourage you that it's best to be in community with others who can assure you that they see God working to set you apart, to use you as a a prism, a a, a conduit through which his glory and his, his attributes are seen. Not as a means of you make, making him love you anymore or a means of earning your salvation. It's, it's the great gift we have that we get to be part of his plan to reveal his glory to everybody. He chooses to work through us. In community, we get the dual treat of having people encourage us when we feel discouraged that we aren't seeing the Lord move in our lives That has been the joy of my marriage is that my wife has been able to assure me, listen, over 25 years, I've seen some improvement. So take heart, you are a Christian. Because there are days where I think I can't be a Christian. I am so like, I cannot believe I'm still struggling with this. And she'll say, honey, I've seen 
the Lord work in your life in a lot of ways. And that encourages me. The flip side of that is there are times where my love and uh, others who are close to me will call out the truth. And if we're honest, that's why most of us avoid community because we really don't like people telling us that our clothes don't match or that there's something in our character that is dishonoring to Christ and troubling to them. We're terrible at self-analysis. We are people that are often blind to our own brokenness and blind to the way our sinful patterns of living are negatively affecting not only everyone else around us but ourselves as well. We need others to remind us that the wardrobe Jesus calls us to wear makes him attractive to others. It makes us attractive too. Most people would still realize that I'm not a clothes horse. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to step up my game of late as I'm spending more time on the college campus where I work too. Uh, I'm hoping to kind of find this nice balance between a a comfortable business, casual look, um, but I'm just not the best at determining whether or not that looks good. And now, it doesn't start out that way. I get in the mirror and I go, hmm, looking good. (laughs) Then I venture from my bathroom into the living area where my lovely wife and unbelievably lovely and honest daughter will, usually in response to my foolish question, how do I look, give their honest assessment. Now, what happens next is still puzzling to me because... I'm the one who asked for it, but I'll walk away mad. Like, oh, I cannot believe, you know, as if, you know, I, like, I, as if I'm hurt. And then I ask myself when I'm in the bedroom, why do I keep doing that? And I realize it's because I trust them more than I trust myself. I know I need them before I go out of the house. I ask you, metaphorically speaking, about people with character. Don't you enjoy being with people who evidence the characteristics of Christ? Wouldn't you want to be with somebody who is kind and humble and patient and compassionate and forgiving and loving? As Colossians 3, 12 through 14 says that we are to be, we're to take this wardrobe of old and throw it away and put on these new clothes. Don't you enjoy being around people like that? Don't you see that it would actually be to your benefit? Not that that's your primary motivation, but aren't we better versions of ourselves when we're loving and gentle and humble and forgiving and patient with others? And what happens is the people in our world take note of that and they say, wow, that, that looks a lot like Jesus. That, these characteristics look a lot like the Savior compassionate, caring. Can't you see how putting on the wardrobe of Christ would honor the Father? How much pleasure it would give God that his Son would be seen in you? When we follow Jesus and imitate him, we take on his attributes. People might say things like, I wish all religious people were like you. Or, you seem like the kind of Christian that I could stand to be around. It may feel a little like, oh, you look good. What they're seeing is you clothed in Christ for his glory. And God the Father is pleased. Let us pray.
Father, as we sang today, we are one with you. And because of that, we cannot die because you, Jesus, have been raised to life eternally. Our souls were purchased by your blood. Our life is hid with you on high, with you, Christ, our Savior and our God. Father, most of the time, I have to confess to my friends that my pursuit of holiness has either been for my own glory or for my own justification. I was trying to do something that would make me feel like it was okay for me to be in your presence. And your word says that our pursuit of holiness should have nothing to do with either of those two motives. That this is about you being seen through us and us desiring to please you as a result of knowing you. And so for most of us, the beginning of the process of being willing to throw out the old wardrobe and put on the new begins with having a relationship with you that's meaningful and life-giving. So I would pray for all of us that we would know the real joy of being filled with your presence, that we would find our identity, our life, our, our soul's delight in being the daughters and sons of the Most High God. And then work your spirit in us so that the attributes of our beautiful Savior would begin to be seen in the way we act towards each other and the way we love you, that they would see you and Jesus would be glorified. For we pray in his name.